had chosen. The morning of Adams's defeat should have been the morning of Andrew Jackson's greatest triumph, and in some ways it was. Everything Adams deplored about the direction of American politics, Jackson applauded. To Jackson, the current contest in America was simply the latest stage of the historic struggle against privilege that ran back to the Magna Carta and included the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the English Revolution of the 17th, and the American Revolution of the 18th. At each stage, the people seized more of what by right belonged to them from those who intended that power remain the monopoly of the few. Finally, for the first time in American history, and for one of the very few times in human history, the people had chosen one of their own to govern them. And now they were to install him in the highest office in the land. A man would have been dead to noble emotion not to feel the power and meaning of the moment. Jackson felt it all, and much besides. The thousands of farmers, mechanics, and crossroads merchants who had come to Washington City to inaugurate him, and the hundreds of thousands of their brethren who had voted for him, could almost taste the fruits of their hero's triumph. But Jackson alone knew what the victory had cost him. He had been fighting for the people's right to direct their own affairs since the Revolutionary War, when, as a mere boy, he took up arms against Britain. A gash to the head from a British sword left him with a permanent crease in his skull, and an abiding hostility to all things British. Smallpox, contracted in a British prison, marked the beginning of a lifetime of compromised health. The war also cost him his mother and brothers, his father had died before his birth, throwing him orphaned upon a turbulent, threatening world. As a young man, he entered politics in Tennessee. He battled the anti-democratic forces in the state and the nation, going so far as to challenge George Washington when the father of his country adopted what Jackson took to be excessive heirs. His audacity on behalf of the people earned him enemies who slandered him and defamed even his wife, Rachel. He dueled in her defense in his own, suffering grievous wounds that left him with bullet fragments lodged about his body. When the British again threatened American autonomy by provoking Indian attacks in the West and seizing ships and sailors on the Atlantic, Jackson joined his voice to those of others demanding war in defense of American security and rights. When the war came, he led an offensive against the Indians and, upon its success, took charge of the defense of the Mississippi against Britain's attempt to sever the United States along the line of the Great River. At New Orleans in 1815, he threw the Redcoats back to their astonishment and that of most of his compatriots. The victory won him the adulation of the American people, who hailed him as a second Washington. But the campaign added to the ranks of his political enemies, who carped at his boldness and his impatience with the forms of military command. The second war against Britain made clear to many Americans something Jackson had sensed from the first, that the struggle for American popular rights was of a piece with the struggle for North America itself. The opponents of popular rights had filled the ranks of the Loyalists during the first war against Britain. The same opponents, or their heirs, had been conspicuously apathetic, in some cases seditious, during the Second British War. Jackson's victory at New Orleans didn't end the British threat. The British still held Canada, and their ally Spain occupied Florida and Mexico. As long as those foes hovered about America's borders, the American experiment in self-government remained in peril. And, while it did... Jackson couldn't rest. Not that he would have rested anyway. His entire life, Jackson had known only struggle. He struggled against poverty as a child, against authority as a youth, against the British and Spanish and Indians as a soldier, against the enemies of popular rule as an elected official. 
His struggles defined him. They also defined his era in American history, which was how he came to symbolize it. Much later, after America became a world power, it could be difficult to remember a time when the success of the American experiment in self-government did not seem assured. But it never seemed assured to Jackson in most of his generation. He and they fought two wars against Britain, an undeclared naval war against France, and countless battles against Indians. They struggled for independence, for security, for the land that provided the opportunity to pursue the happiness of which their Declaration of Independence spoke. They also fought among themselves, over the meaning of the American Revolution, over the Constitution, over republicanism and democracy, over slavery and expansion. Perhaps Jackson exaggerated the degree of danger his country and his conception of government faced, but if he did, he wasn't alone, and it was all those who shared his perception of the precariousness of their world who had made him their president. And so he came to Washington. Yet even this greatest of his public triumphs was marred by the cruelest personal blow he had ever suffered. Just before he was to leave the Hermitage, his home near Nashville for Washington, Rachel died. The proximate cause was physical, a failing heart. But the deeper cause was the strain his race for the presidency had placed on her mind and soul. In their desperation to cling to power, the partisans of John Quincy Adams had recirculated and embellished the earlier libels against Rachel's character. Jackson blamed the Adams men for her death, but he couldn't help asking himself whether he had been complicit. It was, after all, his ambition for the presidency that had provoked the latest attacks against her. If he had retired to the Hermitage, as she wished, rather than continue his struggle against the foes of popular rule, she would still be alive. The knowledge was a burden, the heaviest he had ever borne. But, as he rose from the ground beside her grave, the very weight of her death confirmed his resolve to carry the struggle forward. He couldn't bring her back, yet he could fight on, to ensure that those who killed her not benefit from their crime. Like most other great warriors, Jackson had always conflated the personal with the public. His own enemies became the enemies of his cause. So they did now, more than ever. And on the morning of March 4, 1829, with the memory of Rachel in his heart, and the cause of the people in his mind, he set off from his hotel to the Capitol to take his oath of office. The struggle for North America began long before Andrew Jackson was born. Like similar struggles on all the inhabited continents, it ran back millennia, perhaps to the moment humans first found their way across the Arctic plain from Asia. Oral tradition and archaeological evidence indicate that conflict was a regular feature of life among the North Americans. They fought for forests where the game was most abundant for rivers where the fish were thickest, for bottomlands where their corn and beans and squashes grew most readily. Great warriors were the heroes of their tribes, emulated by other men, sought by women, hallowed in memory. Strong tribes expanded their territories, driving the weak to less favored regions and sometimes to extinction. Diplomacy complemented military force. The Iroquois Confederation made that alliance a terror to its neighbors. The arrival of the Europeans added new elements to the competition. These Far Easterners possessed weapons the Aboriginals hadn't seen. Steel knives, swords and axes, muskets and rifles, cannon. But their most potent agents of conquest were ones neither they nor their victims understood. The pathogens to which long exposure had inured the Europeans but that devastated the Native Americans. But the diseases didn't kill all the Indians. 
Those who survived often welcomed the interlopers, at least at first, especially after smallpox and the other epidemics killed as many as three-fourths of the members of the afflicted tribes. There seemed room enough for all. And the newcomers' traders brought goods the natives quickly learned to value. Iron pots, which bested clay for durability. Steel blades, which held an edge longer than flint or obsidian. Rifles, which felled game at distances arrows couldn't reach, and gave their possessors an advantage in battle over tribes that lacked them. Some purists among the Indians rejected everything European, but most of the natives adapted happily to the improved lifestyle the new technology brought. In time, however, the palefaces got pushy. Their farmers followed the traders and expropriated Indian land. This was when the real struggle started. In New England, in the 1670s, a coalition led by a chief the English called King Philip contested the advancing settlement by destroying several towns and killing the inhabitants. The English fought back, with the help of Indians holding a grudge against Philip's group, and eventually won. Philip was beheaded, and his captured followers enslaved. The Indians' resistance grew more sophisticated. They discovered that the Europeans belonged to more than one tribe, with the French as hostile to the English as either were to any of the Indians. Some Indians sided with the French, others with the English, and when the French and English went to war, as they did once a generation, the various Indian tribes exploited the opportunities to their own advantage. The largest of the conflicts, called the French and Indian War by the English in America, began in 1754 and inspired the Delawares and Shawnees, allies of France, to try to drive the English away from the frontier. To this end, they launched a campaign of terror against British settlements in the Ohio Valley. The terror began successfully and over three years threatened to throw the English all the way back to the coast. But British victories in Canada and elsewhere weakened the French and emboldened Britain's own.